Hello and welcome to the September 6, 2022 Annals of Internal Medicine podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief, and I'm here to let you know what's new in Annals since our last podcast. There's a lot of new material, so let's get started. While the world continues to wrestle with the COVID-19 pandemic, it is also dealing with a global outbreak of monkeypox infection. Recently renamed MPOX, the virus is an orthopox virus that was until recently mostly seen in parts of Africa or in people who came into contact with infected animals, often in laboratory settings. The first article I'll mention documents positive MPOX virus PCR tests in anal swab samples from asymptomatic men who have sex with men. Researchers from Paris, France, retrospectively performed testing for MPOX virus on all anorectal swabs that were collected as part of a sexually transmitted infection screening program. Per French guidelines, this type of screening is performed every three months among men who have sex with men with multiple sexual partners who are either taking HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis or living with HIV and receiving antiretroviral treatment. Of the 200 asymptomatic persons screened that were negative for gonorrhea and chlamydia, 13, or 6.5%, were PCR positive for MPOX virus. Two of the 13 later developed symptoms of MPOX. Whether or not asymptomatic infection will play a role in transmission of monkeypox virus cannot be determined from the study, but the current worldwide MPOX epidemic and the mode of human-to-human transmission may provide evidence that asymptomatic or preclinical spread can occur. Dr. Stuart Isaacs, the author of an accompanying editorial, suggests that the role of an expanded ring vaccination strategy and other public health interventions in communities at highest risk is likely needed to help control the outbreak. According to Dr. Isaacs, this report represents one of many reasons why MPOX needs to be treated as an infection of public health concern. When MPOX is symptomatic, symptoms include systemic symptoms such as fever and malaise and skin eruptions. During the current outbreak, perianal lesions and proctitis have been observed and can be extremely painful. Next is a report of two cases that suggest that early use of oral tecoviramat can successfully ease symptoms. Researchers from George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences described two patients with severe MPOX-associated proctitis and its treatment. Both patients had rapid alleviation of rectal pain after starting treatment with oral tecoviramat with no serious adverse effects. While the authors could not determine the direct effect of tecoviramat in precipitating the rapid alleviation of symptoms, they believed that early use of tecoviramat should be considered for patients with monkeypox and severe proctitis until randomized controlled trials of tecoviramat are available. Tecoviramat, known as TPOX, is a U.S. FDA-approved drug for the treatment of human smallpox caused by the variola virus in adults and children. This drug, developed for the treatment of smallpox, has a non-research expanded access investigational new drug protocol that allows for the use of tecoviramat for MPOX. It is prudent to investigate what you need to do in your state and health system to obtain the drug should you encounter a patient with MPOX who might benefit from its use. Next is a study that found that adenoviral-based COVID-19 vaccines may be associated with short-term increased risk for myocardial infarction and pulmonary embolism. However, there was no association between mRNA vaccines and these complications. Of note, the study did not examine the outcomes of myocarditis and pericarditis. Incidents of hypertension and cardiovascular thromboembolic and hemorrhagic events have been reported for some recipients of both mRNA and adenoviral COVID-19 vaccines. 
Previous research has not found an association between mRNA vaccines and increased risk of cardiovascular events. However, some studies have reported increased risk for venous thromboembolism after receipt of adenoviral vaccines and arterial thromboembolism or hemorrhagic stroke after receipt of some mRNA vaccines. Researchers studied 46 million people aged 18 to 74 using data from the French National Health Data System, which provides comprehensive healthcare claims and hospitalization data for 99% of the French population to assess short-term risk for severe cardiovascular events, excluding myocarditis and pericarditis after COVID-19 vaccination. The authors identified persons who received up to two doses of a COVID-19 vaccine during a non-consecutive three-week exposure period and experienced a subsequent cardiovascular event. Participants received the Pfizer, BioNTech, Moderna, Oxford, AstraZeneca, or Janssen, Johnson & Johnson vaccine. The data showed that the relative incidence of myocardial infarction was highest in persons who received a Janssen vaccine during the second week after their dose. We also report that the relative incidence of myocardial infarction and pulmonary embolism in the second week after receiving a first dose of the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine were 22% and 29% respectively. There was no evidence of a positive association between the mRNA-based vaccines and acute MI, stroke, or pulmonary embolism in the three weeks after each of the first two doses. A large cross-sectional study conducted in 114 centers in 10 countries confirmed that plasma viral antigen can be quantified in early samples obtained from patients hospitalized with COVID-19 and is highly associated with both baseline severity of illness and clinically important patient outcomes. Researchers from the Active 3 Tycho group studied baseline plasma antigen levels from 2,540 adults hospitalized for acute SARS-CoV-2 infection with 12 days or less of symptoms to assess the association of the antigen level with subsequent short-term prognosis, including day 5 outcome and time to hospital discharge. From the sample, the researchers also assessed clinical characteristics and viral factors such as variant type infecting the patient. The researchers found that SARS-CoV-2 N antigen can be detected in plasma in more than 95% of participants at baseline and is highly associated with both the severity of pulmonary illness at presentation and clinically important outcomes. The higher the antigen level, the greater the risk for pulmonary worsening by day 5 and delayed hospital discharge by day 28 across all levels of severity of illness and regardless of neutralizing antibody status. Plasma antigen level was higher among men than among women across all severities of illness and was lower in patients with more days in the hospital and more exposure to remdesivir at enrollment. Taken together, the authors say these data confirm that plasma antigen is a practical and clinically meaningful biomarker for hospitalized patients with COVID-19 and could be used to design precision medicine clinical trials of antiviral therapies in hospitalized patients with this infection. Moving on to topics other than infectious diseases, the next article reports a case control study that found that higher folate levels before or during early pregnancy are associated with a lower risk for congenital heart disease in children born as a result of that pregnancy. It is recommended that people trying to become pregnant take folate supplements to prevent congenital neural tube defects, but whether folate levels also have a role in preventing cardiovascular disease is unclear. Prior studies on the association between pregnancy folate levels and the risk for congenital heart disease have been conflicting. 
Many of these studies measured serum folate levels, which can vary, rather than the better measure of blood cell folate. Researchers from Children's Hospital of Fudan University in Shanghai measured red blood cell folate levels either preconception or during early pregnancy in 197 women who gave birth to offspring with congenital heart disease and 788 who gave birth to children without congenital heart disease to explore the association between periconception folate levels and risk of congenital heart disease. Participant data came from the Shanghai Preconception Cohort Study. Offspring were screened by pulse oximetry plus cardiac examination for murmurs at early neonatal age, and those who screened positive had echocardiography. The authors found that women with offspring with congenital heart disease had lower median folate levels than those without congenital heart disease. According to the authors, to achieve primary congenital heart disease prevention, higher target red blood cell folate levels than currently recommended for neural tube defects may be needed and warrant further study. Tea is one of the most commonly consumed beverages worldwide. Previous research has suggested an association between tea consumption and lower mortality risk in populations where green tea is the most common type of tea. In contrast, published studies in populations where black tea drinking is more common are limited and have had inconsistent findings. In the next article, researchers report a study to evaluate the associations of tea consumption with all-cause and cause-specific mortality using data from the UK Biobank. The UK is a locale where black tea drinking is very common. They also assess where the associations differed by use of common tea additives, milk and sugar, tea temperature, and genetic variants affecting the rate at which people metabolize caffeine. The UK Biobank includes data on half a million men and women aged 40 to 69 years who completed baseline questionnaires between 2006 and 2010. Of those, 85% reported regularly drinking tea, and of them, 89% reported drinking black tea. Relative to tea non-drinkers, participants who reported drinking two or more cups each day had 9 to 13% lower risk for mortality. The associations were observed regardless of whether participants also drank coffee, added milk or sugar to their tea, their preferred tea temperature, and genetic variants related to caffeine metabolism. According to the authors, these findings suggest that tea, even at higher levels of intake, can be part of a healthy diet. There is clinical trial evidence that rhythm control is associated with a lower risk of adverse cardiovascular outcomes compared to rate control among patients recently diagnosed with atrial fibrillation who are at a high risk for stroke. The objective of the study reported in the next article was to investigate whether these results can be generalized for patients with low stroke risk. The researchers studied the claim database of the Korean National Health Insurance Service, including 54,216 patients within a year of diagnosis of atrial fibrillation who received therapy with antiarrhythmic drugs or ablation to control rhythm or rate control therapy. The primary outcome of interest was a composite of cardiovascular death, ischemic stroke, hospitalization for heart failure, or myocardial infarction, and compared between patients with CHADS to VAS scores of 0 to 1 and those with scores of 2 or more. Among patients with high scores, rhythm control was associated with a lower risk of the primary composite outcome than rate control. Among low-risk patients, early rhythm control was consistently also associated with the lower risk of the primary outcome, with a hazard ratio of 0.80 and a 95% confidence interval from 0.66 to 0.97.
No significant differences in safety outcomes were found between the rhythm and rate control strategies. The authors conclude that the beneficial association between early rhythm control and cardiovascular complications is consistent among patients with atrial fibrillation regardless of their stroke risk assessed using the CHADS VASC2 score. The Special Supplemental Nutrition Program for Women, Infants, and Children, commonly known as WIC, is intended to improve maternal and child health outcomes in the U.S. In 2009, the WIC food package was modified to better align with national nutrition recommendations. The authors of the next article conducted a systematic review to determine whether WIC participation was associated with improved maternal, neonatal birth, and infant child health. The author searched databases from January 2009 to September 2021 to identify studies that compared WIC participants to WIC-eligible non-participants or compared outcomes before and after the 2009 food package change. The authors identified 17 observational studies. These studies indicated a moderate strength of evidence that maternal WIC participation during pregnancy is likely associated with lower risk preterm birth, low birth weight infants, and infant mortality. Low strength of evidence that maternal WIC participation is associated with lower likelihood of inadequate gestational weight gain and increased well-child visits and childhood immunizations, and low strength of evidence for an association between child WIC participation and receipt of recommended childhood immunizations. These findings should be interpreted cautiously since data from observational studies with high potential for selection bias related to the choice to participate in WIC and participation status was self-reported in most studies. The authors conclude that there are signals of benefit, but more research is needed on the impact of participation in this program. Next is a commentary by a proud gun owner, hunter, native North Dakotan, who practices medicine in the heart of Baltimore. The author understands how his personal and professional lives may seem at odds with one another, but draws upon his gun insider's perspective to offer suggestions for more common sense gun laws. He writes that his experience practicing medicine in Baltimore has shown him the devastating impact of America's lack of gun regulation. While gun ownership is a right affirmed by the U.S. Constitution and legal precedent, gun rights can be regulated and the history of public health shows that regulation allows for harm reduction. He believes that vocal gun extremists are the outliers and responsible gun owners like himself support common sense policy suggestions, including reinstating the national ban on assault rifles, outlawing gun carrying in high occupancy spaces, implementing universal background checks, and improving safety training. Next is an update of the Good Publication Practice Guideline, a document that offers practical recommendations for publications of companies sponsored biomedical research. This update incorporates enhanced guidance on ethics and transparency, preprints, enhanced content, plain language summaries, patient participation in publications, inclusivity, and publication policies and procedures. The recommendations are intended to apply to peer-reviewed, peer-oriented biomedical publications such as manuscripts, meeting presentations, posters, and abstracts, including enhanced content, preprints, and plain language summaries of or about such publications. The guidance is also intended to enable the compliant incorporation of new and emerging publication tools for the ethical publication of industry-sponsored research. Many patients and physicians feel that the current scheduling systems do not afford enough time for direct patient-physician interaction, leaving patients feeling unheard and physicians feeling demoralized. 
This dissatisfaction degrades patients' trust in our healthcare system and contributes to workforce burnout. Primary care is especially vulnerable to this issue. In hopes of understanding the roots of this time stress and helping to guide future decisions regarding how to organize physicians' time, the authors of the History of Medicine article describe changes in the organization of the United States' physicians' time, starting from care at home in the late 19th century. Early in the 20th century, urbanization and technological changes led more patients to seek care in physicians' offices than in their homes, and physicians hired assistants to manage their time and schedules. At first, patients were seen during unstructured office hours. Later, assistants created highly personalized appointment systems accommodating clinical activities, specific patient needs, and individual physician proclivities. As solo physicians consolidated into group practices or became employees of large health systems, appointment scheduling became centralized and appointment duration became generally standardized with little accommodation of individual patient and physician needs. While previous systems depended on personal connection between schedulers and the physicians and patients for whom they scheduled, today's have few such interactions. The authors argue that the widespread shift to standardized time slots is likely exacerbating ongoing tensions surrounding time allocations and believe that examining the decisions that led us to our current system of managing time may help us make better decisions going forward. Finally, a moving on being a doctor essay authored by two Ukrainian physicians describes the experience of Ukrainian physicians trying to provide care during the ongoing Russian invasion of their country. That brings us to the end of this podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll go to annals.org to delve into some of the new material I've mentioned here. There are ample opportunities to earn CME and MOC credit if you do. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson, Andrew Langman, and Bernie Turner for their technical support.